Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and other episodes as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcatchers. Okay, so let's start out tonight with an update on the NASA CubeSats that were uh, adorably nicknamed Wally and Eve, but are better known as Marco A and Marco B. Now, these were, uh, like I said, CubeSats, so they're very small satellites. They're about the size of a suitcase, um, even I think a little smaller than that. I think maybe the size of a briefcase. And so they are sort of a proof of concept at this point, and they are be being sent out to Mars. And what NASA is hoping to find out is whether or not they can actually make it out to Mars because so far we've only used CubeSats in Earth orbit. And so there's a bunch of CubeSats that have been um, put out into orbit, have been launched out there, and a lot of them have been designed by uh, school groups and children and things like that, and um, also by uh, college kids and all sorts of people. And it's been a really interesting way for different kinds of projects that are low cost to be able to actually come to fruition. And so NASA now wants to see if they can basically extend CubeSats into the actual solar system and not just have them be in near-Earth orbit. And so they successfully made it into space. And at 3.15 last Saturday, they uh, were able to signal NASA. And so this means a bunch of things. It means they were able to unfurl their solar panels, uh, that they were able to find a stable orientation, uh, turn towards the sun, and to switch on their radios. Now, there are still some things that had to be done this week, but I think that they are doing well so far. And again, it's a real hope that they do make it all the way to Mars and are able to actually uh, talk to NASA once they get to Mars and maybe even do a few things while they're there so that we have this proof of concept that they can, that these CubeSats can be used in order to do more science out in the solar system. Because again, it's a lot easier to send a CubeSat, uh, which is the size of a uh, suitcase or briefcase, than it is to send a huge uh, satellite out into or orbiter or even, um, you know, one of the probes such as Cassini and things like that, the Mars orbiter. Those are big and bulky. And the most important thing that you always have to think about when trying to launch something into space is how much does it weigh? Because that is the real issue when it comes to space is overcoming the gravitational forces that hold things to the ground. And so that's why launching things into space is so expensive because the amount of fuel that it takes to overcome gravity is enormous. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's very hard to do that. So if you have the, you know, if you have one satellite that's meant to do one thing that weighs, you know, two tons, or you have however many CubeSats that weigh, you know, less than a ton, and that would be if you had a bunch of them, you know, there's a there's a real cost-benefit ratio there. So hopefully this is going to be successful and they are going to be able to start using these in a more um in a in a better fashion in the outer solar system. Uh because if they can do this, they might even be able to use them all the way out in the Kuiper Belt, which would be very cool because we still need to learn a lot more about the Kuiper Belt uh, than we do right now. It is really funny uh, to think about how we have all of these um, these telescopes and things that are looking out at uh, you know deep space, so the Hubble and some of the uh, telescopes on Mauna Kea, and they're looking out into the deep, deep space to look at all of these interesting things that are out there. But there's still a lot that we don't know about the inner solar system or the outer solar system, our own backyard. Uh, we talked again, I think, last week about Planet Nine, um, which is, you know, this planet that we're we're kind of sure is out there, but we can't we haven't yet seen it. <laughs> and so um, I do think that is one of the funny things about astronomy is that, you know, we've got all these great things, all these great pictures of beautiful uh, solar systems and galaxies that are far, far away. And then someone asks a question about our solar system and people are like, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it is very exciting and, you know, focusing on the positive uh, as far as NASA, because there's been some less than great news this week. Uh, one of the uh, sort of important uh, Earth-based uh, satellites has had its funding cut uh, for monitoring uh greenhouse gases. So that's uh, not so great. But let's let's focus on the good stuff. Let's focus on these really awesome little satellites that will hopefully make it to Mars and be able to uh, be the ambassadors for future uh, CubeSats. Okay, so let's move on now to talk about something that, you know, it's one of those things that like, as soon as I read this article, I was like, yeah, I suppose I should have always wanted to know why this is, but I never had actually thought about it. And so this is a new report about just how it is that the Tower of Pisa, uh, famous for its lean, manages to stay at that canted angle without falling over or being damaged in what is a uh, very earthquake prone area, apparently. And so it turns out that right in this area of Italy, the uh, Eurasian and African plates are actually uh, grinding against one another. And so there is a lot of um, earthquake activity. And so this is an eight-story tall tower. And I'm sure that at some point in your life, you have seen a picture of it. And it's actually meant to be a bell tower for the cathedral at Pisa. And there are bells in it, uh, but they haven't been rung in many, many years. Uh, they apparently haven't been rung since at least the 20th century. Um, I don't remember precisely when in the 20th century, but 
definitely not in the last uh, 18 to 20 years. Um, And so it's actually, it has a height of 183 feet on the low side and 186 feet on the high side. Um, And it's just, it's a really interesting building. I just, as the more I read about it, the more I was like, huh, I can't believe I've never actually looked at this ever. And so basically it was started in August of 1173, but it actually took until 1372 to complete. And uh, so that was when the bell was actually, um, that was actually when the bell was installed. And the reason it took so long was because of a series of wars. And so the tower actually spent the first several hundred years of its existence falling ever so slightly with each passing year. And so it turns out that it wasn't just leaning. It didn't just move out into that spot and stay, that it actually continued to creep every year a little bit further out uh, off of balance. And so what's the, like I like I was saying, this is just really it's just a really odd thing. So they actually figured out very early on in the construction that the land underneath the building, the soil was not very good on the one side, and so they they realized it was going to start leaning very early. But instead of actually you know making some sort of fix to the underlying soil or actually maybe moving it to a more stable foundation, they just decided to make sort of quick fixes. And so, for instance, when they built the upper layers, they built one side slightly shorter than the other to kind of try and pull it back up uh, the other way. But unfortunately, given all of the extra weight, it didn't actually help at all. Now, one of the things that should have tipped them off that this entire thing was a bad idea was that Pisa actually comes from the Greek for marshy land. (laughs) So it's no surprise that they had trouble building a monumental tower. And what's Again, I keep wanting to say what's really interesting, but of course, it's it's just, I know, I'm probably way more interested in this than anyone else. But um, at one point in the construction, the lean even changed as the weight of the new stories changed the center of gravity. So at one point, it was leaning one way, and then as they kept adding to it, it eventually switched leans and moved to the southern lean that it has today. Now... Actually, it turns out that the breaks in construction probably helped it to not actually just topple right over. So engineers suspect that breaks in the construction might actually have helped the tower uh, because it allowed it to have time to impact the soil layers beneath it. And it was able to actually sort of uh, stabilize itself a little bit before then the next uh, giant weight was put on. And so the tower eventually reached a lean of 5.5 degrees by 1990 when Italians finally decided we should probably do something about this. 
Uh, and so at that point was the first time that uh, modern efforts were put into shoring up the building. And so they actually leveled the soil beneath the tower and added anchoring mechanisms. But it didn't actually stop the tipping completely. It was only a second round of engineering in 2008 that finally halted the leaning. Uh, and it turns out that there are a couple of other fun facts, which is, for one thing, um, Mussolini didn't like the tower, but he knew that it was an icon. So he actually tried to have it fixed. And there, his engineers actually made it worse. What they did was that they uh, drilled a bunch of holes in the uh, base of the tower and basically uh, forced concrete into the base of the tower, which... As I sort of alluded to earlier, part of the problem, part of the reason why it leans is because it's so heavy. So adding more weight didn't help anything. And uh, there's a story that, you know, the Nazis used it during World War II um, after that. And uh, supposedly allies, uh, the allies were supposed to bomb it, Americans, but they were overcome by its beauty and uh, probably by its weirdness. <laughs> and so they just, they didn't, they didn't bomb it. They, they refused to call in a strike on it. And it turns out that um, what happened is that the, there's actually a water table sort of slightly to the side and underneath it, and the water table fluctuates. And so that has a destabilizing effect. And so that's part of the problem too, is not just is the soil uh, not particularly dense, but it also has this water table underneath it. And of course, one of the famous science stories about the Tower of Pisa is that supposedly Galileo climbed to the top at some point and dropped a cannonball and a musket ball uh, to show that they would hit the ground at the same time. And so great story, but uh, it's almost certainly a myth. Uh, it was almost certainly a thought experiment made real by the fiction of Vincenzo Viviani, who was a disciple and biographer of Galileo, because he's the only one who ever mentioned it. <laughs> and um, again, part of why I'm talking about this tonight is because there actually is new research. And so new research will be presented at the 16th European Conference in Earthquake Engineering. And what... What it turns out is that that very soil that is responsible for the lean is actually responsible also for it being able to withstand uh, earthquakes. Ironically, the very same soil that caused the leaning instability and brought the Pisa Tower to the verge of collapse can be credited for helping it survive these seismic events, said team member Professor George Milanakis from the University of Bristol in the UK. And so what it is apparently is a phenomenon called dynamic soil structure interaction, or DSSI. And in fact, the researchers say that the tower wins the world record for DSSI effects, basically. And so what this is, is that the interaction of the tall 
and particularly stiff marble tower with the soft soil underneath leads to the tower not resonating with earthquake ground motion. So basically the roiling motion of the earth that's generally accompanied by earthquakes and which often travels up into buildings and causes them to sway and destabilize doesn't actually happen with this tower. The vibrational pattern is such that it doesn't cause the tower to be destabilized. Um, now, I feel like there's both a great joke in there and a heartwarming meme about perseverance and being unique, but uh, that is for some other person with some other uh, set of skills, not mine. And so um, what I would like to to move on to is something that's a little more uh, cutting edge and momentous, even though it may not seem so at first. So it's being reported that for the first time, physicists have been able to precisely measure the weak nuclear force. Now, this won't have any impact on our current day-to-day -day lives, but it is a huge breakthrough for basic physics research. And so uh, if you remember physics, uh, there are four fundamental forces. There is gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. And basically, these forces govern how, how particles interact and forms the basis of the standard model of physics. And so this international effort called the Jefferson Lab Q Weak Conclabor Collaboration was used to study, uh, was able to study this and was actually able to use a weird property of particle physics to get this measurement. Now, the value comes to 0.719 with an error measure of 0.0045. Now, of course, the measure of the charge of this force won't necessarily mean anything to you or me, and it actually falls in line with the standard model. But what is important is the way that they made the measurement. So let's move back a bit and talk about that, just how they managed to achieve this. Now, the weak nuclear force has a particular quirk to it, uh, which was discovered in the 50s and is not shared by the other forces. So basically, if you were to flip the universe, say, make all positive charges negative and all negative charges positive, if you did it in a split second, we'd be unlikely to notice any change. This is called the symmetry of parity. However, the weak force doesn't actually play by this rule. There is an inherent handedness to the breakdown of the particles involved in the weak force. And so if the universe was suddenly flipped, we'd actually notice the change in the weak force. The weak force spins electrons in one of two directions at, at protons, and that causes them to ricochet off in a precise way. And that depends on the right or left bias or helicity of the spin. The difference between the two helicity configurations amounts to less than 300 for every billion electrons scattered, says Ross Young of the University of Adelaide. By measuring this tiny difference very precisely, we've been able to determine the weak charge of the proton. And again, while the measurement was in line with the predicted values, so it's not some sort of blockbuster crazy thing that they weren't expecting to find, it is actually the way that they were able to measure the force that's important. Because 
It's called the weak nuclear force. It's actually not the weakest force. Gravity is, of course, the weakest force. Um, and uh, then it's the uh, strong nuclear and then the electromagnetic, I believe. Um, but it's a very, very small force. And so it's very hard to be able to try and measure these, as he was saying. And so what ends up happening a lot of times is that these stronger forces just sort of overwhelm the measurements. And so having found a new way to measure forces that are so small might mean that we can find new ways to measure forces that are extremely small and that we don't yet understand. Well, like gravity, for instance. <laughs> gravity on the macro scale is quite well understood. We all know that. We talked about Galileo a minute ago. Uh, but on the uh, on the molecular scale, it's it's basically uh, it doesn't seem to actually be there, and so we know that there's got to be something going on there, but we still haven't figured out what it is. And then, of course, there's dark energy, which is also very much thought to be out there, um, <laughs> but again, also we haven't been able to measure it. So if we can find ways to measure the extremely small impacts of these forces, we could move forward beyond the standard model into the bright new dawn of a unified field theory, which is of course one of the most important goals in modern physics, which is to bring uh, macro scale physics together with micro scale physics and be able to say, we actually understand, for instance, how gravity works, not only on the macroscopic scale, but also on the microscopic um, and particle physics scale. Um, and so that would be huge, obviously. That is something that uh, physicists have been working at extremely hardly extremely hard uh, at for many, many, many years. And so, yeah, it is quite exciting. And there's been a lot of good physics work. Uh, we talked about uh, the achievement of spooky action at a distance in a macro uh, element the other day. And that was really interesting and cool because Prior to that, they'd only been able to do it with individual particles. And here you are being able to do it with an object that you can basically see. That's insane. <laughs> it, is, it is a very crazy thing to imagine. Okay, so let's, let's move on to something completely different again. <laughs> so now I want to talk about a uh, sort of uh, a um, psychological experiment, a a um, social psychology, uh, in the realm of social psychology is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so what this is, was a series of studies in China that suggest that those who live in areas where wheat farming is the tradition differ in very, very, very discernible ways in social structure from those who live in more Southern areas where rice is the traditional crop. And so it turns out that the Yangtze River forms a sort of rough divide between the North and South regions. And so the first of two new studies by Thomas Talhelm, a behavioral scientist at the Chicago Booth School of Business, was titled, Moving Chairs in Starbucks, Observational Studies Find Rice-Wheat Cultural Differences in Daily Life in China. 
And so what he actually did was he went to Starbucks in China, uh, in six cities across China, uh, Shenyang and Beijing in the northern wheat belt, and Nanjing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Hong Kong in the southern rice belt, and observed 8,964 people. And what he found was that people in the southern cities were much less likely to be sitting alone, and that uh, they were much more likely to have sort of a community sort of feeling to them. He then conducted a second study where uh, basically what he did was that uh, they moved chairs together in cafes so that they partially blocked the aisles. And what he found then was that customers in northern China were more likely to move the chairs out of their way, while people in the south were more likely to squeeze between them. And so the researchers suggest that all of this leads back to the traditional farming culture of the region. Wheat farming is more individualistic and requires more mastery of the environment, while rice farming includes shared labor and coordinated irrigation. And so that requires them to be more interdependent and conscious of intricate social relationships. I think people in China have long had a sense that northerners behave differently from Southerners, Telham said. This study suggests a reason why, rice farming, and that those differences are surviving into the modern age. Now, Telham has actually been researching this divide for several years. He first had moved to China and was living for some time in Guangzhou in the South. And he notes, I noticed little things in people's behavior there, like people seemed nervous if they accidentally bumped into me in the grocery store. It seemed like people were reserved, focused on avoiding conflict, he said. Then I moved up to Beijing and the north, and I quickly saw that being reserved was certainly not part of the Beijing way of conducting oneself. Um, and so at some point, he actually tells an anecdote um, about going somewhere and having someone in a museum uh Basically, I can't remember exactly what happened, but made a very bold statement. And he thought in the South, no one would have ever said what this person said. Um, and so that was one of the first times he noticed it was uh, when someone made a comment about, I feel like it was, they said someone's uh, Chinese was better than someone else's, I think is what happened. And he just thought no one in the South would have ever said that. Uh, because they would have just, it would never have occurred to them that it was appropriate. And so in his previous study, Telham found that Northern Chinese people were more similar to Westerners and Southern Chinese people more similar to Koreans and Japanese and the Japanese who, of course, both cultivate rice. He even found the striking difference in populations in cities just north and south of the Yangtze River Divide. And so uh, not only basically did he find it in people much further south and much further north, but right on the border. And uh, again, what he says is, the idea is that rice provides economic incentives to cooperation. And over many generations, those cultures became more interdependent, whereas societies that do not have to depend on each other as much have the freedom of individualism. 
And so, yeah, that is a really interesting study. I thought it was really fascinating to find that this sort of ancient cultural practice has continued uh, and especially is still visible and easily discerned in people who have been born and lived their entire lives in cities. And uh, especially, you know, this idea that farming methods could have such a large determination on the composition of uh, your social structure. It's, it's just really interesting. And uh, yeah, so we need to take a break. But after that, we're going to go sort of back even further in time. We're going to go back uh, 11,000 years and talk about an interesting sculpture. And so yeah, uh, I will be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. So glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out. Look out. Uh, oh. oh, my God. Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that's not cool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. The Lilly Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. And we are back. Okay, so before humans even began to farm, they were already creating symbolic artwork. And so what I'm talking about tonight is a 16.4 foot, uh, (laughs) yes, a huge wooden sculpture that was actually first discovered in 1884 in a peat bog near the Russian city of Yekaterinburg. And, uh, There has been new analysis on it that shows that it was most likely produced around 11,000 years ago. We have to conclude hunter-gatherers had complex ritual and expression of ideas, one of the researchers, archaeologist Thomas Terbergen, uh, or Terberger, uh, from the University of Göttingen in Germany, uh, told Science. Ritual doesn't start with farming, but with hunter-gatherers. Now, the idol has a human-like head on top of an elongated, flat sort of body carved with various abstract symbols. Several faces are hidden within the carving, which could represent either evil spirits, ancestors, or gods. The new analysis came from wood deeper in the statue, which was not touched by glue or preservatives added during earlier preservation. And so the new date for this object actually places it at a unique time period. Uh, And so it is nothing like the more naturalistic paintings of the Ice Age, such as are found in uh, the famous caves in France and Spain. Uh, But it actually still comes from people who were hunter-gatherers. This is, again, before the Cultural Revolution. Figurative art in the Paleolithic and naturalistic animals painted in caves and carved in rocks all stop at the end of the Ice Age, archaeologist Peter Vang Peterson from the National Museum of Denmark, uh, but who was not involved in the study, noted. From then on, you have very stylized patterns that are hard to interpret. They're still hunters, but they had another view of the world. Now, this was the early Holocene. And so this was actually a time when Eurasia was warming up and forests were actually advancing as the ice retreated. Designs similar to those found on the carving were also found on artifacts in Turkey. And so there's clearly a cultural shift that's happening all throughout this area. And so basically what it's 
what seems to be happening is that as the climate changed, the worldview and thus the visual representation style also changed. And of course, we can unfortunately never know exactly what the item was used for. Some researchers suggested it may have been used in rituals or as a warning. And the figures found along the length may uh, suggest evil spirits. Others have suggested that it could be more like the totem poles of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and the symbols could either honor gods or remember uh, honored ancestors. Such a big sculpture was well visible for the hunter-gatherer community and might have been important to demonstrate their ancestry, Turberger uh, noted. It is also possible that it was connected to specific myths and gods, but this is difficult to prove. Now, of course, I have talked long and <laughs> at length about the idea of ritual uh, and how ritual is kind of a all-purpose uh, miscellaneous bin when it comes to archaeology. But I mean, clearly, this was almost certainly for some ritualistic use. It was not, uh, you know, it isn't a fork or a knife or a uh, axe handle or something like that. It's It's a, you know, almost 17 foot tall sculpture. <laughs> uh, so clearly, it was involved in some kind of ritual or some kind of uh, symbolic usage. And so, unfortunately, even though we can't tell exactly what was going on there, it is clear that this was for ritual use. And uh, going back even further, <laughs> uh, it becomes clear that uh, what it becomes clear with this is actually... Uh, this is something that people hadn't really thought about very much. And so uh, they hadn't really realized that people during this time period were making this sort of abstract uh, and symbolic art. And so even though there had been some found in Turkey, there hadn't been as much of that. And so now it opens up the possibility of finding more of this. And so that's very cool. Now, going even further back in time, uh, it is even harder to figure out what is going on. However, sometimes researchers get lucky and they actually are able to find a site that is just, it's incredibly uh, perfect. And uh, so, you know, you can come, you can stumble across a site that has continuous occupation uh, from around 78 thousand years ago up into almost the present day uh, and you can find it somewhere you weren't expecting to find it at all <laughs> and so that's what's happened recently uh, the new archaeological cave site of Panga Ya Saidi uh, has a continuous record with people living there right up until 500 years ago said co-lead author Dr. Sari Shipton from the Australian National University, the University of Cambridge, and the British Institute of Eastern Africa. The site has amazing levels of preservation, with so many of the artifacts in mint condition. Previous sites relating to this early period of modern human behavior have all been in South Africa and the Eastern African Rift Valley. This is the first site on the coast of East Africa and the first with such a continuous record. So yeah, basically it's the jackpot. 
And uh, so analyzing plant, animal, and shell remains around the area, they were actually able to determine that this area has basically maintained its ability uh, to have a habitable uh biosphere. And so it's been mostly forest or grassland throughout this entire period. And of course, that was probably one of the reasons that made it so attractive and meant that it had continuous habitation because there were actually uh, large parts of Africa that over, you know, this giant swath of time uh, became uninhabitable due to droughts and uh, other phenomenon like that. And so finding Homo sapiens in this region also suggests that they were able to adapt to a more broad range of habitats, which might, of course, help them move out of Africa and into Eurasia. It was highly unusual to find a site where Homo, where early Homo sapiens were living in a tropical forest, Dr. Shipton said. Early humans liked to be on open grassland where there is a lot of large animals for hunting. These people were living in tropical forest hunting, smaller animals like monkeys and small deer, animals you may need more sophisticated technology to catch. And so again, uh, this is a place that they weren't expecting to find something like this. And they actually hadn't, there hadn't been much investigation in East African coastal regions for early human remains because, of course, nobody thought they would be there. Uh, and so uh, co-lead author Nicole Boivin, uh, also from the, Na the um, or from the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History notes, the East African coastal hinterlands and its forests have been, have long been considered to be marginal to human evolution. The, the discovery of Panga Saidi cave will certainly change archaeologists' views and perceptions. And again, this is an amazing place. They have found over 30,000 items at the site. And that includes worked and incised bones, ostrich eggshell beads, marine shell beads, and worked ochre. And of course, ochre is a, an extremely important uh, part of early humans' rituals. Uh, and so in some of those caves in South Africa that uh, were mentioned, one of the sort of hallmarks of knowing that this is a site of sort of more modern um, homo species is the use of ochre. And some of them were actually covered in ochre when they were uh, deposited in their graves. And so what they found was middle stone toolkits. And so those were found in deposits as back as far back as 78,000 years. Uh, that did change, however, later uh, to late Stone Age kits <laughs> with smaller tools uh, around uh, 67,000 years ago. Uh, but it turns out that the sequence after 67,000, however, has a mix of technologies and no radical break of behavior can be detected at any time, arguing against the cognitive or cultural revolutions theorized by some archaeologists. Uh, 
Moreover, no notable break in human occupation occurred during the Toba volcanic super eruption of 74,000 years ago, supporting views that the so-called volcanic winter did not lead to the near extinction of human populations. Though hints of increased occupation intensity from 60,000 years ago suggest the populations were increasing in size. Um, and so there's actually been much debate about a supposed genetic bottleneck that may or may not have reduced the human population around the time of that volcano. Um, but it turns out that at least here, there doesn't seem to be any large die-off of population that would suggest that this genetic bottleneck actually affected all of uh, Homo sapiens. And so it might have actually just been a group of uh, Homo sapiens who were more affected, and they just happened to be uh, more successful in passing on their genes. The jury is still very much out on that. <laughs> Uh, and so one of the things they found was the earliest bead uh, from any site in Kenya, uh, and it dates to 65,000 years ago. And uh, talking about beads, there was an interesting fluctuation. And so shell beads were initially popular around, uh, especially around 30,000. 33,000 years ago, uh, but then they switched to ostrich egg beads around 25,000 years ago, and then switched back to shells about 10,000 years ago. Uh, and of course, there's no way to know why, uh, but that is something that is really interesting that they sort of switched up their materials. They also found carved bone and tusk, a decorated bone tube, and other uh, decorative elements. Now, the researchers again note that, though indicative of behavioral complexity and symbolism, their intermittent appearance in the cave sequence argues against a model for a behavioral or cognitive revolution at any specific time. So basically what this is saying, according to these uh, layered remains, uh, there's no eureka moment for Homo sapiens where they suddenly made a quantum leap in uh, technologies and in use of uh, symbolism and uh, behavior, but it was more of a gradual movement towards the complex behaviors that would eventually lead to civilization. So that's really interesting because a lot of people have this idea that there are these sort of eureka moments in uh, the um, evolution of modern man. Okay, let's switch gears <laughs> uh, again. And I really wanted to talk about this. It's it's not the biggest or flashiest story, but it's about beavers. And I have to say, one of the coolest documentaries I have ever watched was uh, what I think was probably meant to be an IMAX uh, documentary originally. And it's this movie about beavers. And it's fascinating. Um, and so there is actually a new study in England by a team from the University of Exeter. And that shows that Eurasian beavers actually have the same kinds of uh, significant impacts on preventing erosion and um, mitigating other issues with uh, overuse of farmland and things like that. So led by Richard Brazier, professor of earth surface processes, the study examined sediment depth, 
extent and carbon nitrogen content in a sequence of beaver ponds and dam structures in southwest England, where a pair of beavers were actually released on purpose in a controlled site uh, back in 2011. The animals built 13 dams, slowing the flow of water and creating a series of deep ponds along the course of what was once a small stream, the scientists explained. We measured the amount of sediment suspended, phosphorus and nitrogen in running water into the site, and then compared this to water as it ran out of the site, having passed through the beavers, ponds, and dams. We also measured the amount of sediment, phosphorus, and nitrogen trapped by the dams in each pond. And what they found was a staggering 101.53 tons of sediment from, quote unquote, intensively managed grassland fields upstream, uh, 70% of which was actual soil, uh, most likely eroded from those fields. They also found almost 16 tons of nitrogen and just under a ton of phosphorus. The beavers had, in essence, created pools that sequestered these dangerous nutrients and mitigated the impact of the soil and nutrient flow that would have otherwise washed downstream and affected the flora and fauna uh, downstream. And so an overabundance of nitrogen and phosphorus actually uh, often causes algae, bloom, algae blooms, and that can decrease oxygen in the water system, making them uninhabitable for other species. And so that's a big problem. Um, you can also get uh, sort of toxic algae blooms like red tide, uh, which can even affect uh, humans as we end up in that sort of food chain. And so people uh, end up eating uh, shellfish that has eaten that algae and then, um, you know, it, it's poisonous and you can have very severe effects. And so uh, over an overabundance of nitrogen and phosphorus in waterways is a huge issue uh, both here and in uh, English farm farming, apparently. Uh, and so, yeah, um, more beavers is apparently uh, a pretty simple answer. Now, of course, there is one issue um, that, you know, you have these beaver dams that are basically sequestering harmful pollutants. Uh, and so the only problem is if they end up being abandoned and break, then these pollutants could be washed back into the system. Um, but basically, that just means that we need to be careful to keep our uh, beavers healthy and happy so that they will help keep our waterways happy and healthy and clean. Uh, and so, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, now I wanted to touch on for a second about a different kind of, uh, sort of water-based animal. This one's a lot bigger than beavers, even though big beavers are pretty big. Um, there is a, uh, YouTube show I watch called, uh, Animal Wonders, and it's this, uh, couple who have a, uh, exotic pet rescue in uh, Montana. And, you know, basically people get pets and then don't know what to do with them. Uh, and so they take them in and they're both very well trained in veterinary uh, medicine and things like that, um, or at least veterinary care. Um, they do have actual vets come out and um, 
they have a they just took in a beaver that actually has um, some cognitive issues so he couldn't be released back into the wild and you know he's a baby beaver and he's still he's about the size of my cat and he's gonna grow and um so yeah they're pretty big but uh it turns out that of course there are bigger things out there and so I just wanted to touch for a second before we have to leave on this really cool uh, skeleton that was, or I should say skull, that has been um, examined recently. And it is for an ancestor of the blue whale. And so it turns out that the ancestors of blue whales would have had surprisingly sharp teeth. Now, the teeth were actually widely spaced, uh, and the animal itself would have been around 26 feet long, much shorter than a blue whale, but actually pretty impressive uh, for a whale that lived 34 million years ago. Now, the skull was uncovered on Seymour Island in our Antarctica, and what's really interesting about it is that there's no sign of baleen. And of course, baleen is what blue whales use today. Uh, they're actually filter feeders. They don't get any kind of fish, prey, or anything like that. Uh, so that basically they filter krill out of seawater using this comb-like mouth accessory. And so researchers had kind of assumed that there was kind of a progression between teeth and then moving through teeth right into baleen. But from these results, it turns out that that is almost probably not what was going on. And uh, so it is the second oldest baleen whale ancestor ever discovered. Um, and again, it is a uh, distant relevant relative uh, to the both the blue whale and the humpback. And so uh, it was actually examined by Felix Marx of the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences and R. Ewan Fordyce at the University of Otaga in New Zealand. And so, again, it had well-developed teeth as well as gums. And so basically it was a predator, uh, probably something like a extra large version of a orca. And so what must have happened, it turns out, is that there must have been basically a middle period of whale between the ones that had teeth and then uh, ones that were most likely actually uh, suction feeders. And then eventually they developed baleen. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting that the uh, that these that there must have been some sort of intermediate area between those two states. Uh, and of course, the, the interesting thing uh, about whales is that they actually come from animals that were basically looked something like long-snouted wolves, and they actually moved back into the sea from land. Uh, if you didn't know that, that's why uh, early ancestors of whales probably did have teeth, because they actually came from land-based critters who eventually ended up back in the sea, which I always think is a really interesting uh, factoid about uh, whales. Um, but with that, we are out of time for this evening. So I will be back next week with more weird and uh, wonderful science tidbits. Uh, have a great week and good night.
This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.